first Sunday of Advent and uh, the beginning of the new year for the church. I bet you didn't know that. Now, this is, we're not talking about the fiscal new year, but if you look at what's called the liturgical calendar, what do we start with every year? It's the expectation or the advent of Jesus Christ, his coming, his first birth. I talked a little bit about it this morning. You know, when we think about Advent, we often, we light the candles. We often think about the 400 years between the time the prophets went silent and Jesus' ministry started. Jesus arrived here on earth when he was born. And so we see those different things. And we, we, we look at this time of year and how many of us think about the last year and maybe how tough it was? Maybe the hardships of the year. We hear people longing for something new. I remember uh, being last year in tw- the end of 2020. And how many of you were with me? You're just thinking, if 2020 would just end and 21 would just start, would that not be amazing? How many of us were... I'm with you. I was so like that. I was like, oh my goodness, if 2020 would just be over. And then January 1st, nothing really changed. (laughs) You know, Um, we were longing for that end. There were several of us facing hardships and heartaches and all sorts of different things um, with, with that. And yet... Just because the calendar year ended didn't mean that anything else did, right? So here we are once again, beginning a new year, and we're reminded still that we live in a broken world. And for many of us, and for many people who are not even here with us, but but watching on the live stream, there are many of us that feel beyond hope. This week, we have a word surrounding us, and that's hope, in the middle of what's maybe seeming hopeless. And so I want you to read what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 25, verses 1 through 10. Read with me. Psalm 25, a psalm of David. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemy triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways. Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, O Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant You know, when the psalmist wrote that, they weren't in a joyous time of their life. And and the thing of it is, is that when we hear the words of the psalmist today, those of us who are in the depths can hear this and say, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. Teach me for you are my God and my Savior, my hope is in you all day long. We read and we hear those words. Promise, 
trust, hope. It's a reminder of who God is. He is trustworthy and he is faithful, but it's also a reminder of who we are as Christians, as disciples of Jesus. We are people of hope. We are people of hope even in the midst of despair. Now, this specific psalm is designed as an acrostic poem, so it's meant to be read in its complete entirety from start to finish. But we didn't do that. And, you know, when you, when you do those things and sometimes when you translate them out, especially into English, you kind of lose some patterns and, and things that were significant maybe to the Jewish people of the time. There are days that I've, I've said, I wish I was Jewish so I could understand this more and better. And then the Holy Spirit says, it's okay, Dan, I got you. Oh, but that I could understand this deeper. But there are some things here that we can take with us, not just in this Advent season, but we can take with us throughout the year. That poem, it begins with a declaration of surrender and trust towards the Lord. The NIV translates that first verse as, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In the New Living Translation, it says, O Lord, I give my life to you. You know, that's something that we need to, to look at. There's something of significance there because, and this is what I want you to write down. I want you, if you got a piece of paper today with you, if you got something, maybe on your phone, I have this little notes thing on my phone that I am always typing things into. I love it because when I write things on paper, I'll just be honest with you. Jane can attest to this, okay? She can, she'll tell you. I lay things down and I lose them. I've laid my, no, I gave my keys to my wife this morning, didn't I? I just felt my pocket because I, I lay my keys down and I lose them. And I just thought as I was saying that, I've lost my keys. But my wife has them. So they're safe. She knows where they are. If I have it in my phone and I write it in my phone, all I have to do is, is scroll through it. And then I've, right, right? And then I've got this cool little program that'll actually, I can email it to myself and put it on a little thumb drive. And, and Bob Lober has made a special place for me on our little server up here so that not only, not only could I save it, but I can save it and not lose it because it's not on a thumb drive somewhere. It's not on a computer somewhere. It's there in, the, in, in our little special place. I love it. I just love it. Technology is great when it works. Can I say that? But I want you to remember this. There is hope when we surrender. We see this theme uh, repeated in the New Testament where Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome and we heard it earlier. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, here's the thing. I always say this with this verse because living sacrifices, they crawl up on the altar. But if you're anything like me, Every once in a while, you tend to go, oh, wait a minute, and you crawl off, okay? That's, that's, that's kind of a tendency we have as human beings in this broken world is to get distracted about what it is we are to be, and what we are to be is a living sacrifice to God. There is hope in surrender. 
Both of these passages talk about that. The entire psalm is one of trust. If you read it from beginning to end, it's not that long. It's 25 verses. It begins with an act of surrender. And the psalmist is saying clearly and definitively that not only that God is trustworthy, but that the psalmist themselves are willing to surrender their entire life to God. What does that look like? You know, in the Church of the Nazarene, we have a teaching called sanctification, entire sanctification. And a wise pastor, one of my former bosses, explained it to me, and I was like, oh, that is so it. And he said this. He said, when you experience sanctification, it's not about you getting more of God. You get all of God at that moment of salvation when you accept him into your life and the Holy Spirit begins his work and you make Jesus Lord of your life. He said, sanctification is when God gets all of you. And I went, okay. In fact, I think I even used that in my ordination interview. I was like, I'm, I'm going to tell them really well how, how this works. But you know what? He's right. You see, the thing of it is, is that we find hope not in the things that we can do. We find hope in surrendering our life. And how do we surrender? Uh, this is surrender, right? When you see people doing this in worship, this is surrender. I surrender. I remember very, very clearly the day that I surrendered. I was at Wenatchee Church of the Nazarene at the time, a young father. My children were babies. And I can remember hearing a sermon being preached about how life is like a greenhouse and, and you know, there's two sides to the glass in the greenhouse. And God wants to shine through the greenhouse into your life, but you've got a responsibility to keep the inside of that greenhouse clean so that the light of God can shine through. Light is a, is a, is a representation of life in the Bible. God's light. We talk about walking in the light, right? We talk about being children of the light. We talk about those things. We, we, but do we ever realize that? And I remember, I remember running down, because I was running sound that day, running down. I shouldn't say running down. It's a spiral staircase at the time. They don't have their sound booth upstairs anymore. But it was like this spiral staircase, this real tiny spiral staircase. And if you missed a step, you slipped about four. Okay. And I remember going down and Pastor Norm wasn't in his office for some reason in between. And I remember writing a note to him and all I could explain to him, because I had no idea what had just happened in my heart. But I remember writing the note and saying, I get this. Your sermon spoke to me today. Jesus is no longer the light at the end of the tunnel. He is the light that lights up the tunnel. That's all I could do to explain it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't explain it any different other than at one point in time, I'm fumbling around in a dark room. And all of a sudden, the light switch came on. And it was different. Now, I'll tell you how I got there. I prayed a very dangerous prayer. 
But you know what? Sometimes we need to pray dangerous prayers. If we're going to be people of hope, even in the midst of the despair, okay, we've got to pray some dangerous prayers. And I prayed this. I said, God, because I'd been struggling I'd been struggling in my life. I'd been, you know, trying my best and doing it, but I was doing it on my own. And so I said, God, here's the thing. I can't do this. What your word says, I can't do it. You're going to have to do this in me. And I said, so you either do this in me or leave me alone. Dangerous prayer. Very dangerous prayer. You know, when we surrender, God says, that's all I need. Amen? When we throw our hands up and say, God, I can't do this. He looks at us and says, huh, that's what I need. Right there. That's all I need. Both of these passages talk about that. This entire psalm begins with an act of surrender. The psalmist is saying clearly and definitively that not only is God trustworthy to be there when we need him to be there, but we have to be willing to surrender our entire self to God. That act of surrender and trust goes hand in hand with hope. And I'm not talking about willy-nilly, wishful, sit on Santa's Claus's lap and tell him what I want for Christmas kind of hope. Okay? That is not, that's just wishful thinking. That is not hope. Hope is based in faith that what is good and right will prevail. We have hope because God is trustworthy. Our surrender to the trustworthy God sets the stage to live out hope in the world around us. Did you catch that? We got to do something with our hope. Our surrender to the trustworthy God sets the stage for you and I to live out our hope in the world around us. Verse 3 says, don't let anyone who hopes in you be put to shame. You got to realize back in that day, the culture of that day, shame was prominent when this was written. If you brought shame upon yourself, you also brought shame upon your family. It was something to be avoided at all cost. The plea to have no shame be brought upon those who put their hope in God and his trustworthiness was because those who trust in God won't be put to shame. God is faithful. Those of us who put our hope in him will ultimately see hope fulfilled. Surrender is the beginning of our hope. When we surrender to God, we find that God is trustworthy. When we surrender to God, we find true hope. And while we are waiting for hope to be realized, we still hope for God to draw near. We still ask Jesus, the Messiah, come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, surrender leads to formation. Do you know that? The moment that I laid my life down to God and said, I can't do this. God, you're going to have to do it in me and through me. 
or leave me alone, right? When I said that to him, and God told me very distinctly, I, I just heard it in my heart, yeah, you can't do this on your own, and thank you, that's all I need. He began to work. Surrender leads to formation. One of the prominent themes of this psalm is this idea of guiding and teaching. Verse 4, make known your ways to me. Verse 5, lead me, teach it to me. Verse 8, the Lord teaches sinners. Verse 9, God guides and teaches the weak. You see, surrender is not the end. Surrender is like opening up the garden gate and taking a step on the path. It's a starting point to a life of hope and transformation. Once the psalmist surrendered, they were open and moldable to becoming the person that God is calling them to be. And that's an interesting thought. I've often prayed, but it wasn't my prayer. I, 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 I kind of copied this from someone else. I can't remember where I picked it up anymore, but I pray a prayer every morning that goes something like this. God... I need you today. I need you to craft me and shape me and mold me into the man of God that you need me to be. And then because, you know, we all wear different hats, I go down the list. God, I need you to create within me who you need me to be as husband for Bobby. God, I need you to, to create, shape, and mold within me whom you need me to be so that I can be a good father for Carissa and Michael, grandfather to Colin and Theodore, father for Taylor and Charlene, and father for Joshua. Lord God, I can't do that on my own. I can't be the parent that you need me to be for them. Even as they are adults, I need you to shape within me who you need me to be. And there are several different prayers that I pray. That's another dangerous prayer. I had a friend of mine who went through a time where she said God was pruning her. She says, he's been pruning me so much you could call me stumpy. You pray that prayer, I guarantee you there's going to be some pruning that happens in your life. But remember, what does pruning do? It cuts back what isn't needed so that fruit can grow. I remember when I was, oh, probably in middle school somewhere, we had this huge cherry tree out in the front yard. I don't think you could reach your arms around the trunk. Now, we lived in East Wenatchee, and so there's lots of fruit trees around, but this one was old. And so my stepfather, it, it hadn't been pruned. I can't tell you in how long, okay? So he decided he was going to go out and prune it, and he pruned it back to the branches that were about coffee can size. Thought he killed it, which, you know, wouldn't have broken his heart because then you don't have to clean up the leaves and the cherries that the birds get into and make a mess with and, you know, all the stuff that goes along with having a fruit tree. But he didn't because the second year after that pruning, let me tell you, we had more cherries even after we thinned that thing off, we had more and more and more, more fruit than we knew what to do with. They were like a real dark red cherry. You couldn't eat very many of them, not without making yourself sick, let me tell you. But they tasted so good. We picked them things off and gave away as many as we could. We picked them off through some of the trash because I'll tell you what, birds will make a mess with those things. They'll just be everywhere. 
You know, when we surrender to God, we pray that dangerous prayer. God's going to prune us back so that there's a purpose so that we can bear much fruit. Now, I got to tell you, in this psalm, there's a contrast in that text between the person the psalmist used to be and the person who God is transforming them to become. There's a lot of language in that. There's a lot of confession. There's pleas and there's cries that God would extend forgiveness for sins of the path past. There's language of growth and there's movement towards something more. That psalmist wanted to be more. And they're clearly illustrating the mercy and the grace and the faithfulness of God. Because God loves each and every one so much. He loves you and I right where we are, but he loves us so much, he won't leave us there. Did you know that? He loves you enough to not leave you there. Transformation has a clear result. We are to be transformed into someone who is a reflection of God. And the people who follow the ways of God are people of justice. The idea of justice, please do not confuse that with revenge. Justice is the idea that things will be set right. The, the order will be out of the chaos. The order will be set right. But it's a major theme for Advent. We long for the day's return of when justice will be made right, when Jesus returns. People who follow the ways of God, they know the path to take, but they don't. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy to make that decision. God doesn't remove the, the chance of temptation from us. Jesus was tempted just as we are. But those who follow in the ways of God, they'll live an upright life. When Scripture talks about descendants in the Bible, normally it's to identify who their parents were, right? Or so-and-so begat so-and-so. You guys watched Friday's devotion. We've read a lot of that out of Matthew chapter 1. When Scripture talks about descendants, they usually talk about what land they would inherit. And we've got to think about this in the context of time because owning land meant long-term security. It meant well-being for generations of, of people to come in time and place when things were unstable and insecure. But that good and upright life does not necessarily mean what it thinks. It's not just about security. Owning land was also about the ability to be hospitable to others. Remember in that last sermon series, Pastor Jerry and I talked about different things, but we talked about how we were created for a purpose. There isn't anything that has been created that doesn't serve a purpose. Our purpose is to love God and love others as we love ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves so that we can fully love God and love others, correct? We have a purpose. The blessings and goodness of walking in hope were never to be things that God's people hoarded. Rather, this hope was meant to be extended to others. The ability to be hospitable gives God's people a chance to practice our faith. Good and prosperous are hopeful words. 
The Lord counsels those who follow the ways of God. God's covenant is known to them. The presence of God is with the people who surrender and follow the ways of the Lord. Knowing God and the promises of God is an important quality, probably one of the most important, while God seems so distant. Here's a promise that says he's close. He can be known when we surrender and allow him to transform us. So there is hope in surrender. Surrender leads to formation. And God is trustworthy even today. This is another thing to write down. He's trustworthy even today. In, in this text today, who is the main character? Really isn't the psalmist. The main character is God. The Lord does the good and right thing. Even when the psalmist doesn't, God's ways or paths, what does the psalmist say? They're always loving. They're always faithful. And it can seem harsh that God may be only compassionate to those who act in right ways. But when you look closely at this, who was the psalmist? The psalmist was saying, I'm the one who needs to repent. Who did God have compassion upon? The sinner. The psalmist, he, they aren't right and they know it, they've sinned. But the compassion of God extends to anyone who is willing to receive it. Verse 16, if you go further in that psalm, illustrates the mercy of God and how he is trustworthy and faithful even when we are not. I think we serve a pretty cool God. Is it okay for me to say it that way? <laughs> Man, I am so thankful that we serve a God that even when we make wrong choices, he is still faithful to us. He is continually faithful. So there is hope in surrender. Surrender leads to formation. God is trustworthy even today, but this formation that he has given to us leads us to action. Hope is active, not passive. There are ways in which the Lord leads and teaches that are action-related. Justice is active. Righteousness is active. Following God is active. Oftentimes, we want to say we have hope, but really we're living in this stagnant despair. And it paralyzes us into a place of inaction. But hope infuses us with the power to move forward in the ways that God is leading. One of those symbols of Advent we did this morning, we, we lit this candle. But it's not just meant to stay here in the sanctuary. This idea of a light of hope in the midst of darkness. It's not something we get to hoard. It's not something that we can sit back and just keep for ourselves. We have been designed to carry the light, the light of Christ out into the world through acts of justice and righteousness and by following God wherever we're called. The candle we light today is a symbol of hope, even in the midst of darkness and despair. We remember that God came at just the right time. Did you know that? The Bible says that Jesus was born at just the right time. 
That phrase, some translation call, uh, interpreted as the fulfillment of time. Now, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I have been, since my children were little, I have been a connoisseur of Disney cartoons, okay? And um, their, uh, their movies, you know, I, I loved them. One of them was the one about Hercules, I don't know if you've seen that one. It's, it, there's so much funny stuff in that one. It just cracks me up all the time. But there is a point in time when Hades goes to the fates and they do this little rhyme and this little dance and they talk about how when the planets line up, when we are talking about in the Bible, in the scriptures, okay, when this was written, the fulfillment of time, that idea was very similar to the thought in that movie. In the fulfillment of time, when everything lined up just right. And I'm not talking about planets. I'm talking about the world stage. I'm talking about the, the state that Israel was in, the despair that Israel was in. I'm talking about that Rome was conquering everything, literally everything at the time, right? When everything was just perfect, Jesus was born. When we talk about the second coming of Christ, guess what? The writers of the Bible, the writers, the Holy Spirit inspired these people to write that same phrase. When everything is just right, Jesus is going to return. And I often wonder, and I, I think I've said this in a few of the devotionals, by the way, I, I think I've said this. I often wonder if we as Christians have forgotten that our longing is for Jesus to come home, to come back and take us home. Are we at a point where we are praying like Israel was praying to God for the Messiah to come? Are we at that point in our lives? I have to confess to you, I thought I was. But then I kind of got checked. I feel like there's more work we got to do before we can ask Jesus to come back. I'm not saying he couldn't come back tomorrow because, folks, he could. Remember, he said that was for the Father to know. And, and when John and all the other people talk about that day, the day of judgment approaching, the day of his return, the second coming of Christ, which is the advent we live in now, when he did that, they're talking about the fulfillment of time. And I, I'd been praying, Lord Jesus, come. And I still pray that, Lord Jesus, come. But there's still a part of me that the Holy Spirit says, yeah, but there's still some things you got to do, Dan, before I get there. I'm not sure we're there yet. I know, I look at the stage, I look at the world, I look at all the different things that are happening and I keep thinking, Jesus, why haven't you come back yet? It's not time. There's more for you to do. I need you to go do this, I need you to do that. Could you, could you be about doing what I need you to do? When I come back, it'll all be okay, it'll all be taken care of. But Dan, there are some things you need to do. This candle is a symbol of that kind of hope. That kind of hope that we remember that God came at just the right time and we can have hope that God is coming again at just the right time to make all things right. But if all we do is light this candle, 
here in this sanctuary, listen to a great message about hope, we miss it. We are the carriers, you and I, of the hope that this world needs, which means we have to take this light that is within us out those doors. Hope is for the world around us. Jesus tells us in Romans chapter, uh, or excuse me, Jesus tells us that we got to be salt in, in Matthew chapter 5 when he's giving this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever preached. And he says, you got to be salt and light. I forgot to put that up there. We see the despair and the death around us. The world longs for something more. The world longs for the hope of Christ. We carry that light within us. It's the light of Christ, the light of hope. If you read further in this psalm, the psalmist moves from a self-focused cry. And in verse 22, he says this, Deliver Israel, O God, from all of their troubles. I think that's a good prayer for us to pray this week. Dear God, deliver us, deliver humanity from all of our troubles. You know, as we are transformed and we learn how to follow after Christ, we learn to take the light of hope into a world that it desperately, desperately needs it. God's desire is not for us to leave this light here in this space, but to take it with us to our homes, to our workplaces, to our schools and our communities. You and I carry the light of hope, the very hope, the everlasting hope in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, today we come before you. And Lord, there are times in our lives where we know, we know that we have sinned. We know that we haven't done things that you need done in your kingdom. We know Lord God, that we have oftentimes hoarded this light. So, Lord God, right now, we ask for your forgiveness. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to do the deeper work within us because we cannot carry this light on our own. We cannot take it outside those doors on our own strength. The only thing that we can do is to rely upon you to do that deeper work within us so that you can work through us. So this light of hope will shine in a despairing darkened world. Lord God, from the youngest to the oldest to the furthest in between, Lord God, would you do that work within us so that you can shine through us so your hope will be given to those around us 
Help us to take this light with us. Help us to, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. Help us to shine that light as we leave here today. Father God, we thank you and we praise you because you are the almighty God. And today we want to bring you honor and we want to bring you glory. And so, Lord God, we lay these requests at your feet. And we pray them in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord God, Father, that you would do that work within us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.